Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. Now, on today's episode, this was a bit of a tricky one for me because the guest on the show deals in a subject matter that I have my fair share of doubts about, or I certainly did before I spoke to him. So let me explain, okay? Uh, He's a hospice physician. He's an end-of-life researcher who studies the experience of dying. He's the chief medical officer and the CEO for the Center for Hospice and Palliative Care in Buffalo, New York. Now, he's the author of a book called Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End, and has published multiple studies uh, that draw on interviews with over 1,500 patients that explore the end-of-life experiences, pre-death dreams and visions of the dying, okay? Now, I know that you know as I'm reading this out, some of you are going, okay, I get it. Um, His work was the subject of a a TEDx talk, which has been viewed over three million times. His research would also be featured in an upcoming Netflix production and a documentary film to be released in 2021. So January the 6th, I think that comes out. If you listen to it, he'll tell you more. Um, His work's been featured in the New York Times, Huffington Post, on the BBC, among others. Um, This guy has changed my mind, okay, and... How he changed my mind was to demonstrate to me evidence as to why um, the research was done on understanding the dreams that people that are close to death have and how it helps them move to the afterlife with peace, but also how it helps the families of those loved ones that are losing a family member. Now, I'm not bouncing around with this, but I'm talking to you quite calmly, but I want you to pay attention to this because I really do believe you can learn something like I did too. So without further ado, cue the music and welcome Dr. Christopher Kerr. Can I call you doctor or shall I call you Christopher? Or Chris? Fine. Chris. Chris, okay. So first of all, Chris, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast. Uh, we're here in sunny Dubai at this time of year where, well, I suppose it's sunny all the time in Dubai. It's just a level of heat that we have to deal with. You're Canadian, but you're in the States at the moment. But I think you're in a cooler part of the States as well, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in Buffalo, very near the Canadian border. So look, I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to understand what you do. And, and I... I was initially very skeptical because it didn't make sense to me. And, and, and I think one reason what you do doesn't make sense to me is that I don't have dreams or I certainly don't have dreams very often. And so for me, thinking about the impact of dreams was something that I, I, I found difficult to get my head around. I then spent some time listening to your TED talk and some other stuff. And I think I've learned a bit better, but the audience that are listening today, so hi guys to everyone out there, um, that listen today are going to be saying, what is this all about? So maybe if you can introduce yourself to everybody, let them know what you do, why you do it, and, and, and how you've got so much purpose behind it. That'd be fabulous. Sure. So um, I'm a palliative care doctor, um, which means I take care of people who are seriously ill. A lot of them are actually dying. Uh, and I found this work kind of on the side over 20 years ago. And w- one of the things that I learned early 
um, was that there was the observable piece of end of life that we see, which is the, the physical manifestations of end of life. But then there was also the experiential piece that people were having subjective or inner experiences at the end of their life. And we're so blinded by the grief we're either anticipating or the suffering that we're observing, we're forgetting that the patient is actually in this very unusual position. It's a vantage point where their perception and their perspectives are completely different. It's just natural. The, the reference to dreams is actually is interesting. I don't dream either. I know very little about dreams per se, um, but dying is different than, than when we're in health. So dying is by definition, it is a progressive uh, state of sleep. You get weaker, you do less, it's easier to sleep. Even if you have the flu, you get this pull to bed to close your eyes. And what happens is your level of alertness changes, your level of arousal changes, and your sleep more and your sleep architecture changes. And people who are experiencing dying, and this is really what happened to me, I, I don't have any disposition towards this stuff. Um, I'm not into anything paranormal or afterlife. I was just looking at this medically. And what I was struck by was the frequency in which patients were describing um, these very profound experiences in their sleep. And the, one of the most common things we hear is I don't normally dream, but, um, and it, again, they're sleeping predominantly. So they're spending more time in a sleep state than they are in a wake state. And the, the character of the dreams are entirely different. When we measure them and ask them um, what it is uh, on a reality scale that out of 10, they give it a 10 out of 10. So these feel virtual to them. And as they get closer to death, they're actually spending more time in these very deep sleep states. Um, and I, I just realized that um, I didn't have, again, I didn't have a disposition. If I could ignore it, I would have, but the majority of our patients were relaying them and they were thematically, they were consistent, they were profound, they were therapeutic and meaningful, um, so they couldn't be ignored. And then long story short, as I was trying to teach this and uh, all the medical students and residents says, well, that's a lot of bull. Um, there's no evidence for this. And they were right. It's been described across all cultures throughout time. Um, it's always been known in many native cultures. Uh, it's a way of connecting to your ancestors, etc. cetera. Um, but it hadn't been described medically. Uh, medic medicine's about defying death uh, and, and denying it, not actually looking at it experientially. Um, so that's what happened. Then I did the research, published it, and got, uh, we've actually published seven papers, got very little response in the medical community, but then a weird thing happened. It went around the world and went up in the New York Times, the Washington Post. I was hearing from China, Korea, throughout Europe. And the point is, is that people who have cared for people who are dying have witnessed this time and again. And so it was our work validated what had always been known. There's nothing particularly new or novel. It was just put in a scientific framework. So we did formal studies, we ruled out confusion, we videotaped people, um, and that's how it came about. When you think about those people that, that work in either hospices or care homes, that for them to realize this must have, must have solved a puzzle in their mind that they've been thinking about for a long time, these, these unusual coincidences between these dreams. Is that what you found with people? They were like, I've kind of heard it. 
No, the people on our side of the fence who do this work, it was like, tell me something I don't know. Um, they all, they all, they all knew this in their bones. And, um, you know, it was, if you, if you work with dying patients, uh, it's, it's more common than not that, you, that, that you're seeing this on a near daily basis. Um, particularly seeing people who have passed before you and, you know, you don't have to view this in an entirely supernatural way. As you, as your life winds down, you automatically stop forgetting about the trivial issues, bills that need to be played, whether your car needs oil change. You go to things that matter most and you naturally reflect. So some of this is just inherent to the process. You think about the things that mattered and who meant the most to you. You return to all of those things and overwhelmingly the themes are themes of love. Um, and, and there seems to be this editing process where people who harmed you are forgotten about and people who loved you or nurtured you or secured you come to the surface. Um, and it's just, uh, it's time and again. And, I, you know, it, again, the, the fascinating thing was, so we, we've documented this and, and published all of it in reputable journals, but to see the people in, in video is really remarkable. Has it been a battle for you trying to get this accepted? Um, no, it's actually, it's, it's really depends what audience you're talking about. Uh, you know, on the, on the non-medical side, I can't stop the momentum. You know, there's, there's over 3 million views on the Ted talk. There's Netflix, there's books bought by multiple countries. Um, on the medicine side, medicine generally is become more technical, not whole person based. And I think we're progressively more uncomfortable with dying. Um, there's almost institutional abandonment of the dying patient. You can go to the hospital for a million dollar workup, but when you're actually suffering and just need care, that's not a place you typically go anymore. Um, so I know in my training, you know, when someone was dying, we signed off their care because at a teaching hospital, there was nothing more for us to learn, um, which is really tragic. Take, take me through the journey of an individual. Would, the, would they have to be somebody that, that you knew they were dying within a period of time before you started to study them? And if, if, if not, would you, would you take people that is, I know it's not like people that die instantly, but let's say somebody has a, a mild version of cancer. It doesn't look like they're gonna be dying anytime soon. It's not stage three, stage four, anything like that. Do you start to talk to those people as well, or are you only researching people that are that are, that are know have, have got a limited timeline? Our, so it's a great question. Our original um, our original studies looked at people weeks before death who were coming into a hospice inpatient unit. Um, so they so they knew. Um, we then went farther upstream um, to people who had up to a year to live, and we were trying to catch the temporal relationship between the frequency and the change in themes as people approach death. And there was a real noticeable difference, most, mostly towards the last um, couple of weeks before dying. You know, the thing we'll never know about is, um, is people who have acute death, um, where it's sudden and unexpected. But you know, you, you, you gotta wonder, we have statements like, my life flashed before my eyes, or even George Floyd, are you familiar with George Floyd? Um, you know, what did he call out as he was, life was fading? He was asking, was he asking for his mom? Yeah, yeah. So the, those sort of things tend to be reported. They're obviously hard to study. 
Um, so there's automatically a selection bias, right? We're taking people who know they're dying, have accepted their mortality and entered a hospice program. But anecdotally, in our clinical world, we hear it all the, hear it all the time. So I, I had a, a guy that I know um, in December of 2018, we were playing five-a-side football together. In, he went home to Scotland for Christmas. We then saw each other in January. He wasn't feeling very well. Mid-January, he was diagnosed with cancer. He was 30 years old. And by the 15th of March, he'd passed away. That's a very short period of time. But, you know, by February, he knew he was dying. Do, do you ever study those types of, of people uh, as well? I just want to make sure I understand it. Yeah, yeah, we, we absolutely do. They're in our program. Um, and they die differently. Um, there's less time to process. There's more sense of responsibility. Letting go of life at 90 when your children are on their own and functional and independent is entirely different than if you're in young life. Um, we still see that return to people who they've loved. It could be a grandparent, etc. We've actually studied a lot of children um, and written those cases up and they're, they're also videoed. Um, and they may not have known somebody who died, but they've known pets that have died. Um, and the return using the, the, the children in the videos use the same language, which it means that I'm loved and I'm not alone. Um, so one of the things we notice with this is they're overwhelmingly comfortable, comforting, but they also lessen the fear of dying. So it's kind of reclaiming the life that you led, but also at the same time, diminishing fears. So this, and that's really the, was the interest for me was that, um, again, I didn't particularly, this, this, I found this more discomforting at, at some level personally. Um, I'm kind of the last guy who would go to a seance or have my palm read or anything like that. So I don't have a disposition towards this, but what I was struck by that as a physician, um, that it was so inherently therapeutic, so you couldn't kind of ignore it. And were the were the 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 dreams a, a time when you know the, the, you know there's some people that get sick and they fight it, you know they fight it and they survive, and for whatever reason they're they're able to survive. Do these types of comforting and, and accepting dreams that you've spoken about do they come when it's almost like all else is lost? You know, it's the, the, the patient knows it's going to happen. It doesn't matter what they do, it's going to happen. And, and they have to make peace with death and then this starts? Or is it before then? Yeah, predominantly people have already made peace. Um, but actually, you know, there are some exceptions, particularly with young people. Actually, we, 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 ironically, we had, uh, I had a young lady who was 17 who was an immigrant um, from Saudi Arabia who, uh, and she, we published her story. She was torn between the vigor of youth and biologically and psychologically, she was built for that and her, her whole disposition. But the reality was she was dying. Um, her, her dream experience or her inner experiences when her eyes were closed absolutely self-informed her that her life was ending. Um, and although the religious themes are less common, hers were common um, to, to religion. And, 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 and so we've seen both, but we absolutely have seen people who it, it did self-inform. And let's just talk about the fear of death, because I'm, I'm, I don't know whether the fear of death is uh, as more prominent now than it was before. I can't imagine ever, anyone ever, you know, not being scared of an unknown situation. 
but or, or have some fear around it. But when you when you look at people, you know, my, my grandparents, for example, were missionaries in the Second World War. They um, worked across Africa, across the colonies, and they, I, I, they, they, they were Seventh-day Adventists. My grandfather was a preacher, and it, they, they kind of, they already knew where they were going. They were very clear in their mind that there was, there was something after they passed away that they could look forward to, and they, they were excited about. And when one of my grandparents died, the other one was like, well, look, I'm gonna be with your grandfather soon anyway, and we're gonna be okay. The, the, the people that have maybe like that example of somebody that might be more religious than an agnostic or an atheist, is there any differences in, in what you experience in your research? No, we, no, actually, we haven't seen that. And uh, it's a hard thing to tease out. And I'll tell you why. Is we, look, we ask people of their belief systems, but there's a huge disparity between what people report and what they practice. So we live in a very Catholic area and people will dutifully write down that they're Catholic. But when you ask secondary questions, they are actually questioned. They're, they're not that rooted in their, in their faith. I don't think if you talk to people who do this work that we see the religious die differently um, than anybody else. And one of the things that has come out in our studies and other people have shown is really the lack of religious themes and icons. And there's some interesting interpretation of this. A, a wonderful theologian from Harvard wrote about this. You know, people aren't dreaming of mosques, churches, and synagogues. Is this counter to, to our beliefs? And actually, it's quite the opposite, because if you were to boil down the themes that people dream about, they're actually love and forgiveness, which are actually consistent with the tenets of faith. Um, so the argument goes that it's less about the symbols of faith, but more about the ideal and, and, uh, uh, and the pillars of faith. And the, the, our first and last classroom of love is really our family. And that's where we're typically returned to. So that it's, it's dreaming of your grandparent or dreaming of your lost parent or sibling or spouse. It's that sort of thing. Um, and that, that almost, that core humanism is more central uh, and valued within some of our belief systems and it's not counter to it are you are you the first person or the kind of like the go-to guy and and the world's authority on this do you think i don't know i don't i wouldn't say so i think i'm different for 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 an important reason and it's a really important reason one of the problems with judging everything pre-death is everybody views it as a keyhole into looking into something after death. Yeah. So you come at it from a position of religion, you come at it from phenomenologic reasons, from afterlife perspectives. We weren't interested in any of that. We were not editorializing or interpreting. All we were doing was capturing the patients, and this has not been done well, capturing the words of the dying and trying to capture their experiences unedited and unfiltered without trying to assign it a, a higher meaning. And that's what's unique in what we did. Um, it was important that it came from a physician. So right or wrong, I'm not coming at it from psychotherapy. I'm not coming at it because I have a religious platform that I'm standing on. I was really just looking at it in terms of patient care. Um, and that's what's unique. We definitely have. Yeah, that's the bit, isn't it? That's the bit. You're not. You, you're coming at it from that 
point of view. And I think that maybe it would be easy to assume that you weren't um, or to make assumptions around the fact that you must be looking at it from a different perspective to the, the, the point of view of a physician. To, yeah, I, wanted, to... I, wanted, I wanted the I wanted the dying the words of the dying to be validated onto themselves. It's a mystery onto itself. I didn't want to color it. And as soon as I if I were to do that, if I were to come and present to a group of doctors and say, "Hey, I've got proof of an afterlife," I'd be immediately discredited. Um, I didn't want someone to have to go through that lens to see what was clearly told. And actually the reason why I filmed the patients was because I felt it was very, very important that we heard from them directly. Um, and so that it was, it was unambiguous, that, that you don't have to believe me, listen to the people who are telling you the story and they look and sound like you and me. They're not confused, they're intact. So it becomes very important. Your, your experience yourself with your father dying young um, I believe he was 42 when he passed away, and, and you were a, a boy at the time, obviously. Do you think that was a, a very big catalyst, or do you think that was just a kind of catalyst for you in this? You, you, you hit on a very interesting question, um, and you tell me, because that, you, you, it depends how much you believe in randomness. So, um, yeah, my father's death at that age was not something I was... Um, it, it, it was it was a pain that I couldn't even address or talk about. Um, and uh, I witnessed him at the end of his life and he, he he was in a state of confusion, but he thought we were going on a fishing trip. So it was for him, it was pleasurable. And I knew that intuitively, even at the, that age, that he was in a good spot. I had an aversion to all things dying. And I was actually an interventional cardiology fellow trying to defeat death, not care for dying. And what happened was I just was, I needed a job on the side to support my family and ended up doing hospice work on the side in 1999 and decided it was actually the most meaningful work I had ever done. And then I have a PhD in neurobiology and I kind of switched my research from bench scientist science to actually what the experience was in dying. And so here I end up back at the full circle at what was back to really what was the most pivotal event in my life, which was the loss of a parent as a child. And I guess it's not random, but it sure wasn't intentional. If that makes, does that make sense? Let's talk, yeah, it does make complete sense. Let, let's talk about the, the families, the, the relatives, the husbands, the wives, the sons, the daughters. What, what does it do for them, positively and negatively? Oh my gosh. So there's a general, there's a general, rule in medicine, what's good for the patient is good for their loved one. And uh, I, per I personally think the most meaningful videos are of our family. So we have published two papers of 750 family members. And I can sum it up really quickly. If, if somebody has, um, if somebody has observed a loved one having a comforting experience, that absolutely changes their sense of grief and loss. And that's actually measurable. So we applied scales for grief and processing. People adapt better, they reconcile better, they remember better, they move forward better. There's a lot more health if they've seen it. Because if you think about this, if you're, if you're standing above the bed of your life partner and you're, um, you're, you're, 
you're worried and you know they're physically comfortable, you're worried about who they are, where they are, and are they okay? And we've got cases where <clears throat> a couple has been together um, for 65 years and they lost an infant. And the husband's looking at his wife and in her last days, she's holding the baby and cooing to the baby. That redefines death as something that's empty and without worth as to something that actually returns us to something that makes us whole and reconnects us. So that the, 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 the videos of the families are, are, are really stunning because it's, they're soothed in a way that's really very hard to describe. Even the parents of children who are dying. So to, to, to me, that's, that's how on the surface of it, that's how I would imagine it. But is it always like that? Or does it create for some families either greater fears or greater worries or a greater sense of abandonment almost? No, I haven't. I honestly don't. We don't see that. Um, we've certainly seen people, people die as they live. So we certainly see distressing dreams and that's equally as off-putting, but they're rare. Um, but that can certainly happen. Yeah. Um, but by and large, no, they're, they're, they're powerful and they're comforting. Yeah. So you are, are about to become a TV star. <laughs> I don't know about that. Something. <laughs> with your your netflix documentary tell me tell me about how that came about and tell me about the process because um a lot of our audience here will find this quite fascinating yeah you know i so I, it's it, again i i did this for a medical audience and i started filming people you know i don't know 2010 and i meant that for medicine the medical audience now it's being used in all sorts of things different documentaries so there's two documentaries. One is Death is But a Dream, which is like a PBS or public television, uh, full length, 60 minutes, which will go across the country um, starting in, I believe it's March. Then Netflix is announced um, a docu-series, which is called Surviving Death. And uh, that begins on January 6th. Um, and there's six parts and we're one of the parts of, of the show. And, and so, you have a team of people around you or somebody reached out to you and said, would you consider doing this? How did, how did it happen? Yeah, I avoided it actually. Uh, I wanted to just do all to go away and uh, to get back to research. And um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want necessarily to write the book or I didn't want to do any of this. And I have very mixed feelings about it uh, because in a way it's distracting Um and, 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 and I worry, yeah, but, but what happened was I ended up getting so many um, replies from families uh, how much this meant. And here's why, because nobody had explained it to them or validated it. And this is the first time it was put in a caregiving context where people go, that's what I saw. And so it kind of took on a new meaning um, for me. And then what happened was the, the, um, it's an interesting process. People think you write a book and then hope somebody buys the book. If the topic's interesting, they find you. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to, to me. So as soon as it ended up kind of going around on all the major media um, and it leaked out, I didn't go and, you know, it was, I think it was really the Ted talk that, that, that then 
other forms of media came, then agents come, then publishers come, and it has this kind of crazy momentum onto itself. It's a fascinating, this had been 15 years earlier, I'd just be obscure guy in Buffalo, nobody would give a damn. But it's the way information spreads now that's really so fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Because one thing just, well, just you're an example. Uh, yeah. We communicate differently and we disseminate and we amplify information in a way that's unimaginable. So there's this natural force, natural selection process where if it appeals to people, you just keep going up and up and up. And that's what happened. When you, when you consider, and I know you spoke about, you know, when your father died, how getting involved in hospice work almost became a bit of a calling for you. Um, and you became very, you know, the, the, let's be honest about it. You, you've got to be a certain type of individual to want to work in a hospice. Um, it, genuinely, you have. But you felt this calling towards it. And now you have people around the world that get what you're saying, get what you're meaning, hence the reason for I mean, documentaries and Netflix series. So it's that, it's that further evidence that what you're doing is it actually impacting people? I know you want to go back to your research, but that impact that you are able to have on so many people must must bring, bring great internal reward for you. Yeah, you know, yes and no. I, I keep hoping somebody else will pick it up and do a better job. I worry about... <laughs> I keep I worry a bit about being overly identified. I'll tell you when it becomes neat. There's just it's it's interesting because of who you hear from. So I got to tell you a story. About six weeks ago, I'm up in northern Canada in a log cabin looking after my mom who's who's ill, and I get a, a phone call from a lady from Australia, and her name's Lynette Walworth, and she's actually it turns out she's a three-time Emmy-winning award film producer. And she's doing research um, with some indigenous people in the Amazon and the outback of Australia and happens upon that they have this belief system um, where they have well described, they actually have language for what I describe in my, in my book. And um, she, goes, she goes, hey, you know, these people are describing exactly, you're describing exactly what they've been describing for the millennia. I'm thinking, oh my God, isn't that fascinating? So now we're actually going to hopefully working on a project where she's big into virtual reality and that's what she's won so many awards for and put a visual representation to this, but then using the indigenous people's experience to validate our research experience and vice versa and really define it in human terms rather than ethnic and religious terms. That's really- Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, really fascinating. It's like, you know, if I was in that position, I'd have, I'd have this massive desire to want to go and spend some time with those people to learn, you know, what's been part of their thinking and behavior for, for generations, if not centuries. Um, I mean, surely, uh, that's just, that's just fascinating. So the indigenous population of Australia plus tribes in the Amazon jungle. Yeah. Yeah. And I had heard this and we, we, you know, you, you hear this all the time. Oh, you know, from cultural anthropologists that, that, Hey, you know, Chris, you're not describing anything we don't know. Um, But it, somebody connecting the dots like that. And actually, again, this was not her interest area. She just stumbled upon it as she was working with them. And then somebody told her about my book. She read my book and then she called me and said, Hey, we got the same thing going on here. 
So um, yeah, it's wonderful. When you when you think about what you're doing, uh, this has been something you've been doing for how many years? Um, I started doing the research in the early 2000s. Okay, so you've been doing it for, for almost 20 years. Yeah. And how long have you been in, in medicine for? Oh, make me feel old. 32 <laughs> years. 32 years, okay. So 20 years you've been doing it. When, when you think about your life and the work that you've done, where can you go from here? Is there, You say there's more research, but what else is there to find out, do you think? What else is out there that you don't know about that maybe maybe you'll stumble upon? What, what, uh, we're writing a second book, and, and a, we have a second body of research, and, and, and it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about it as you were introducing yourself and describing, you said something that was interesting. You talked about uh, people taking a positive experience um, out of what could be viewed as traumatic or negative, this idea of post-traumatic growth which by the way, we've done research on that with dying and, and absolutely, despite death being viewed as horrific and profoundly negative, they actually have all sorts of positive gains and insights and adaptations and that's also measurable. I'm really interested in caregiving. This notion that if you speak to people, I, I started to attend some of these groups of caregivers and basically what they summed it up by saying it was the best, hardest thing they ever did. And I'm trying to um, find out more about the life affirming aspects. It's like nothing else, right? You all of a sudden, your life gets stopped. You may have been had a different relationship with a parent for 40 plus years. And now you're going to be put back together in this way. And roles are reversed. And you're forced to find the courage you might not have had to do things you might and devote in a way you may not have had and sacrifice in a way you might not have been prepared for. Yet, there's something at a very human level that has meaning and value in that. And even while you're experiencing loss, um, and so that's what we're looking at. Um, you know, we're interviewing an amazing family of immigrants from Bangladesh who have a child um, who is dying and they view it as the greatest gift, uh, the care of this child who's been disabled profoundly and needs total care 24 hours a day, but how it brings not only their nuclear family together when she's not doing well, they actually sleep all around the, the bed, um, but also their larger community that she's the source of draw for everybody that brings people together in this very interesting way. So those are the kind of things that were really looked at interesting. I, I knew, I've known it intuitively. It's one of the things that drew me to this work. It was just such a privilege to be part of families and to see them at their very best, the very best of human nature. What you've said really rings a chord with me. I have a friend of mine um, who actually has got her own podcast as well, actually, called Emma. And Emma is a professional embalmer. And so once people die, when they go to the funeral home, she embalms the bodies. And when she first told me about that, I'm like, you do what? She's, she laughed at me. She goes, yeah, often people say that. And her, her husband is a guy who I know as well. And he said, our first date, she had to pop in <laughs> to the, oh to my the God. funeral parlor and made me, made me go in with her. What she and, he, and he went back for a second? <laughs> yeah. wow. that's, what, that's what everybody says, you know. Why would you go back for a second? That, that would be the instant run, you know, run as fast as you can sign. But anyway, when, when I talked to her about it, 
I'm like, how could you do this? You know, how did, I, I, to me, it's just such a, a morbid subject. He said, Spencer, I, I have one of the greatest honors that exists. I get to do this and provide for these families a reminder of that person. You know, I get to dress the, the deceased person and I get to embalm them and I put the makeup on and I do their hair. And she said, I see it as an incredible privilege to be able to do it. Now, the way she expresses it isn't, you know, I don't mind doing it. You know what? Well, other people don't like doing it. I don't mind doing it. It's okay with me. It was from a way deeper place than that. And she lives here over in Dubai now, but when she moves back to the UK, and she's from Brighton, when she moves back to the UK, her objective is to do, go back into doing that in her own practice full time. And when I think a lot of the time when we deal with, you know, generally, when we deal with what can be seen as morbid subjects, it takes a certain type of individual that can see it from a completely different perspective to then be able to... to correlate that and present that then to the outside world in, in a better way which is what you've been doing as we've been talking today does, does that resonate with you yeah it, it 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 does i think it it sometimes takes being shaken off your moorings and put into a situation that you think you understand but you actually don't um and then other people showing you something that you that you don't otherwise see and i think that's what i see in my families that we care for is it's not it's not me discovering them. It's allowing them allowing me in enough to show me in a way that it's enlightening. Um, and it's, I just find it so fast. Where I end up on this, though, is it's like the work of our work on dying patients is there's actually a better story than the one we imagine. And I think as a society, we've become so ageist and death defying and all of those things, we're going in the wrong direction. If you look at older cultures, they embrace this in a way. Um, the funeral was held in the home, the village got together, there was, so, there was mourning was collective, um, but it was part of, it was an acceptance of life in its full spectrum. Um, and there was just, even on caregiving, there was just this idea. It's funny we're having this conversation. So I'm, I live on a horse farm and uh, I have these Amish, friends of mine here now working on a barn. Now, I went down there to pick them up this morning. If you go to their homes, they look like a bunch of boxes put together, sm progressively smaller boxes. And the reason is, is because the newest generation lives up front in the biggest home because they've got a family of 10 kids. But what they do uh, 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 as part of their culture is they care for all of their extended family. So the next smaller house may be both their parents and then the grandparents and an uncle. So it's, they're literally, uh, concretely have a structure to this sense of obligation to one another. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting. So I just, I'm not so sure in our modern society, we have, we've lost, we've disconnected ourselves from that obligation to one another. My initial impression of it is you, you're getting them closer to a smaller and smaller box as they get closer to death until they get in their final one. Yeah. Yeah. And we've yeah. institutionalized it. Right. And which is funny because if you, if you ask this in American society, 75% of people want to die in their home, in the context in which they live their life. And exactly that percentage doesn't. 
75% die either in hospital or facility like a nursing home. How do people want to die if they have the choice? Oh my gosh. They want to die um, in the place in which they lived. Um, that gave their lives meaning, that gives it tone and texture. And that's usually their home surrounded by the people they love. And do, do people typically want to die quickly or do they? Do they? No, it, much too much is made of that. Nature takes care of itself. Um, you know, all of the, there's a lot of bugaboo about, about that and hastening death. Um, and, and there are, certainly are situations, undeniably. But by and large, um, it's quieter and more graceful. Um, and more dignified than we fear. We've done something to make it something that's unnatural when it's, it's completely uh, natural. There's a quote, you know, you know, do not, do not fear death, basically, when the time is right, it will take care of itself. And, and that's actually kind of what, what, what happens. And do you believe in fate around that kind of stuff or not? I'm not sure. It's a good question. Um, you got to wonder sometimes, I think. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are some things that I, that I think you would call fate that I don't think of as fate. For example, when people die. So to die, for example, we see people hang on for ridiculous amounts of time or waiting for that loved one to return or kids to go back to school or baby to be born. And those things make sense to me as I get older. It's, um, to, to, to die, you not only have to have, you need to be able to sleep. To be able to sleep, you not only have to be physically comfortable, you have to be psychologically at peace. And the analogy for me as a parent is it's Friday night and I'm tired and want to go to bed, but I haven't heard the kids come in the door click. So I may be able to close my eyes, but I'm not comfortable. And we see the same thing at end of life. It takes a hell of a lot of strength to be a sick person, a lot of energy. And, you know, it's like when you have the flu, you can, you can get up if the doorbell rings, but you'd rather not. You have options. And it's kind of the same in dying is that you need to be able to let go, as we say. But to do that, you have to be at peace. So there's, so yeah, I guess there's fate in that. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Christ, it's a really fascinating conversation I'm having with you today. The audience, I think, are going to have tons of questions around this because I, I could sit and talk about this for a lot longer. Tell me about your, uh, and uh, I, I, I want you to be honest as, a, as not as a professional, but as a human being, you, you've worked with lots of people that have gone through the process and, and, and lost their lives in the hospice. And a lot of your work has been researching these people. D do you, do you get emotionally connected to these people? And does oh, it, terribly, yeah. terribly. Yeah. Um, I think there's several types of connectivity. So there's there's the there's the ones that are just um, that you come to love um, and respect, and it's sadness that you it's a personal loss for them. And then there's the ones that are just tragic and unjust, like the children, and that's a different type of wound. Um, it's, it's a different kind of hurt and loss. Um, and then there's other ones that a, a lot of people are very much at peace, uh, particularly older people who have lived their lives and are tired. Um, and and that's, a, that's almost a release. But it's no different than life. There's people um, that you become extraordinarily fond of. Um, 
and and there are words for for to describe the, what that feels like. I think there and there's circumstances like there's I have somebody recently who um, is a, was a parent uh, of a dependent child um, with Down syndrome, and where there's situations where their life cycle didn't happen in a, in, 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 in what we would consider relatable or normal where that person didn't go off on their own. So their whole world is defined by that person. That is a different loss. And, and so they affect me differently depending on the relationship dynamics and who they are, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I find it. I, yeah. I find it very difficult to get my head around being involved in that. I think I'm quite an emotional person. When I think about my other grandparents, my on my mother's side, my grandmother died, she was maybe in her late 70s, but my grandfather, who was in the Second World War at Dunkirk, he, he for a long time, he, he kind of like got into his mid-80s and he'd had enough. And it was almost like the world wasn't going to take him, but he, he was ready to go. And so he, got, he, he died at 98. But from, for, for a good 10 years, he was just like, I just want to be with your, mother, your grandmother, you know. Um, I've had enough of being here. I've got nothing else to offer the world. And it, it always, I felt a sense of injustice that uh, some, some force kept him here for longer than he wanted to be. And I wonder, I wonder what he would have experienced in, uh, when, he, when he came to the end and what kind of dreams he would have had around that. Oh, I'm sure the elderly people do it best. Um, and it's beautiful because um, time and distance seem to be irrelevant at the end of life. There's, there's triggers to your memory that, that are, we, we see this with music therapy, for example, they, you can have a demented person who can't talk, you play the right marching song from the military and boom, the person becomes fluidly verbal. There, there, there are triggers emotionally, we have greater access to and recall than we know, depending on where we're at contextually. And I think end of life is one of those people experiences that that rekindle memories. So it's not unusual to have a 95 year old man who lost his mother when he was five. And it's her voice that he hears and he can smell her perfume, um, that kind of thing. So I, we see the, the our oldest folks do this the best. Um, because if you think about it, 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 this is true of, of people as they age, even if they don't have pronounced dementia, their distant memory is better than their recent memory. So they often can't tell you what they had for breakfast, but they can tell you what they wore to their high school prom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what tends to happen, and they're not living in a current state, you know, they're not worried about jobs and those responsibilities. So they're, they're more rooted emotionally in a distant time. And I think that comes even more to surface at the end of the life. So if I were to guess, um, particularly because he's a vet, because vet, if you've had a proximity to death, you often return there too, that just le it leaves an indelible mark. So our, our veterans, it's sad because th there are not many of them left, but our World War II veterans, I used to go around in a unit of 10 and you know half the people there were back at battle. Um, so my guess is he was reliving past. Okay, one, one final question on this. Um, psychedelics, were they ever used in terms of research for any of this kind of stuff? I mean... Uh, well, it's a huge area of research now. Huge. 
Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm by no means an, an expert, but oh my gosh. Yeah. There's a lot. If you, if you Google, you'll find a ton written about it and it's in it, it's, it's, they're kind of finding it, it, it as an aid in dying, um, and completely inverting the experience. Yeah. You nailed it. It's a big area of research. Yeah. Interesting. It just, um, it seems so many things from, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old, so some, so many of the things from, you know, my past, you know, with you know, CBD and this other stuff and, and having an impact. You know, my mum has arthritis and she uses CBD oil and it, and it helps her enormously. And you see people with Parkinson's and their shakes and they're using stuff that's illegal in some parts of the world, but it's really medically really helping them. And then well, you, 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 and I, you and I are at a very interesting juncture in life because we're watching... The stuff that would have got us thrown in jail, <laughs> we're applying it to our elders. I'm doing the same thing with my mom, applying <laughs> CBD. I'm thinking, oh my God, this stuff would have got me thrown in the can. Now I get to rub it on your knee. <laughs> yeah, my mom's a huge fan. Well, Canada is very liberalized when it comes to marijuana. And so, yeah, she's, she's, she indulges. Yeah, yeah, and, and my mum, my mum is accepting of it as well, which is even funnier, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it's complete role reversal. See, we were right in the seventies. We were right. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so let's just summarize again. Just tell me when uh, you you wrote a book. Did you did your book come out already? Yeah, it came out in February last night, last year. I wrote a book on dying just pre-COVID. And that's called Death is But a Dream, yeah? Yeah, and it's, it's in Arabic. It's in, I think, 10 or 12 languages now. China, Germany, etc. Okay, we'll, put the, we'll, we'll get the link and we'll put this on there. If you, if you to take the book and describe the book for everybody in two minutes to make sure we go buy it, describe it. It basically describes um, my research, but through actual patients and Sam. So I use clinical stories to highlight the, the, the key elements of our research. Um, so it's really told at a very human relatable uh, level. Um, it won the Publishers Weekly Star. So it, the, the writing is, I guess, adequate. Um, it's relatable, the people are real. Um, most of them are also in the documentary or the film. Um, yeah, that's it. Good, excellent it's stuff. It's, it's, it sounds like a dreary topic, but it's actually very uplifting and life affirming. I reckon, that, I reckon that there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this, that, that, that a lot is going to resonate with them. So I, I think this is a really important subject. So um, the Netflix documentary is called the same or different? The Netflix documentary is called Surviving Death. Surviving and that's Death. January 6th is the first come. And then the PBS is, uh, is the same as the book, Death is But a Dream. And that comes out in March. Okay, so Surviving Death. Let's hope that people don't... Um, pick it up and read it considering they may have had too much to drink over the Christmas period and nearly put themselves in. The yeah, exactly. Could be. <laughs> but you can also go to the website. If you, I have a website, if you want to see the videos, which is really important and it's drdr.christopherkerr.com. Okay. Excellent stuff. We'll get the links on there too. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting away with you today. I've learned something which has been valuable and I know for sure people out there are going to really enjoy the stuff that you've shared with us. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. I, I can see why you've been so successful. No, man. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you.
Well, there we have it. Dr. Christopher Kerr, well, he was an interesting guy, wasn't he? I think a lot of the time I'm, 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 I'm talking to people about very moving subjects. And I think some of you that might have lost a family member in the not-too-distant past, this will resonate more with people that may not have been exposed to death as much. But learning how when Chris's father died at 42 years old, he had an impact on him and, and he's gone into this world of research to demonstrate to the to the medical industry that this is real to get evidence with so many patients that have been videoed and tested for a documentary to be coming out on netflix about it tells me that this guy really knows his subject obviously you can see it's a joy to talk to obviously you heard the dogs barking in the background <laughs> but it was a, an interesting episode and one that if you'd like to learn more about what he's doing, then give me some feedback and let me know if there's stuff that you'd like to know that I didn't ask. Maybe situations that you've been in where you would have ex experienced something and you'd just like to know more about it, then reach out to me or my team and we'll be glad to see what we can do to find some answers. Um, Chris is happy to help in any way he can. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.